Hello and welcome to Rearview, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. I'm Andrew and this is episode 38. I am delighted to be joined by Eric Galina, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of Form Trends. Welcome to Rearview, Eric. I'd like to start off by asking if you can explain what Form Trends is. Well, Form Trends is my passion project. Um, basically, it is a website about automotive design um, and the people that work to bring us the concept and production cars that we all love. And um, I've mm-hmm. I basically founded Form Trends um, just after working at Car Design News, which is um, I, I'd been there for a long time, basically six. Uh, a little over six years, I think it was that I was I was there, um, and I basically went off and decided that I wanted to um, do that, but without the kind of um, drawbacks of uh, being in a company and being told what to do. So um, it was it was just <laughs> something that you know after after being at Car Design News for as long as I was, I'd built up a certain level of contacts, and I had been a freelancer before. So I decided that I wanted to go out and I wanted to do something similar to car design news, but not exactly, and something that where I could spread my wings a bit more. So basically, Form Trends was an idea that myself and the actual creator of car design news came up with in the very early, early days. Um, subsequently, he ended up getting a job uh, as a full-time designer over in China, so Oh, that's very selfish. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was something that he was looking forward to after, you know, being at Car Design News. He founded the company in 99. Mm-hmm. I came on board as an employee number one. In, All right. You know, in, in, I started working for Car Design News when I was still at university, but then I joined full time in 2007. Mm. And... Um, Basically, he he always wanted to get back into design, and so when that offer came to him, um, he you know basically jumped on. And I can't fault him. You know, I would have done the same thing. Oh yeah. So now I basically just run the website. I do everything from everything that you see. So um, I'm I'm a jack of all trades essentially. I, I edit. <laughs> I built the website. I edit all of the content. I have some good friends that you know sometimes write articles for me uh, but most of the content is written by myself I edit all of the photos I upload all of the content I shoot all of the videos I basically it's a one-man band and um, but again you know I, I spend quite a bit of time on it but it's something that I really do enjoy doing and because I enjoy doing it so much I don't mind the 12 hour long days um, the traveling around because I always get to meet interesting people and things end up coming off of the back of that website. So I've only just monetized it this year. I've been working on it since 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, again, it's, it's a passion project. And from there, it's opened up, it's opened up uh, quite a few doors for me um, where I can continue to do things in the car design realm that aren't necessarily written or photographic or video. Um, some might be, um, but I also, you know, take to the stage every once in a while and give some presentations on uh, on automotive trends. And uh, I speak to people, and I also advise on a consultant basis 
um, companies that really want to make an impact with what it is that they're doing in terms of design and promote that. So a lot of um, social media kind of um, consulting as well has, has kind of taken um, taken place because of what it is that I do on Form Trends. Um, you know, I built the business myself basically through word of mouth and through social media channels. Mm. No, that, that's excellent. And it, it, that's something that uh, I found um, with starting the Merchant Podcast with Alan is uh, there are, you, you go in with certain expectations and certain aims and you think, right, it, it will hopefully pan out this way. But it's the stuff that comes in from people who've been following what you do or how you've done it. And they say, can we have a chat about this? And you, which you don't generally expect to happen. Yes. Um, and and they they are I find that those very interesting and uh, equally surprising. We should now get on to where you first got interested in cars because uh, that's what I do every time I talk to someone because and I don't want to I don't want to mess with the trend here. So uh, do you remember or have you been told uh, how young you were when you were first interested in vehicles? Honestly, honestly, I couldn't tell you. Um, all I do know is I remember. My earliest, earliest memories, I had like, you know, matchbox cars in my hands, <laughs> digging roads in the dirt um, and just building towns that revolved around roadways. Uh, <laughs> so, so I had the whole nine. I had, you know, the uh, I had the digger. I had the, you know, the all the construction equipment that would build the roads and then I would put the cars on the roads and, you know, I would transform carpets that had patterns on them into roadways of some sort. So I, I have absolutely no idea how I got interested in cars to begin with, but I do know that I, I think I was just born with it in my veins. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just something I, I, for the life of me, I, I don't know where it came from because, you know, you always hear these guys that, their father was a racing driver or a mechanic or he worked at Porsche or something like that and got mm. them into cars, took them to all these, you know, Formula One races and stuff like that. My father didn't do any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> my father owned a, like beat. We don't we lived in New York City. My father owned a series of beat up cars that um, he was quite happy to park and leave on the street and didn't have to worry about locking them or them getting dented or whatever. So it wasn't like, you know, he instilled this passion in cars upon me. I, it, what's strange, though, is that I remember my uncle was very much into cars. So this is my mother's brother, and he lived in France. Mm. And, you know, so in the, in the summertime, I would go there and I would spend some months over there. Um, not necessarily with him because he worked very long hours and I wasn't always around him. But I, I did have a similar passion Um in cars as he did which was uh which was quite surprising i mean you know later on he owned alfa romeo's like you know things like that right but mm. um i i in my immediate family you know like I, I like i said was born and raised in new york city i didn't have anyone that kind of instilled that um passion in me it was just like i was just born with it so uh, was uh... With the plane, with the cars, well, it sounds like you were, first of all, it sounds like that you were uh, auditioning for smart city development <laughs> and consultancy there. <laughs> you, you've got you've got through the whole holistic approach of designing a city. There. <laughs> yeah. Well, I used to draw quite a lot of cars. I mean, you know, and, and you know, 
you always hear young designers or you know people that are even at the director level they how they start out they were drawing cars in the margins in their notebooks instead of mm. listening to whoever right in class math class whatever um, I pretty much was doing the same thing um, the the problem though is you know I mean I I went my mother worked for the United Nations I went to the United Nations school you know my entire upbringing in New York City I went to uh, to a private school in, in New York City where they basically you know it was the sons of diplomats and whatever that mm. and they were grooming you to be a doctor or a lawyer or maybe you know follow in your father's footsteps and be you know a, a diplomat or whatever mm. um, and I like I never got the kind of career advice I mean I got chalk thrown at me when I wasn't paying attention in class you know that's how <laughs> that's how they would discipline you back then but um, I was never told hey yeah you know there's um, there's something for you out there you know um, so I never followed the who knows maybe had I known that there was such a thing as a car designer I would have said hey maybe I'll pursue that when when I was in grade school and high school I was just drawing cars all over the place all the time um, I mean, I was drawing other things too. It was funny. I was drawing like comic books, you know, of my friends as superheroes, you know, and I would distribute that on like Monday morning after having worked on a black and white pencil, you know, 30 page um, comic book story of, you know, two of my friends that were going at it, whatever. It was an interesting story, but not one that's uh, suitable for, uh, for, for work here. Um, no, but I think I think it is the the the, the artistic side of things, the artistic interest. Uh, it's one thing to to. It seems to me, anyway. Sorry, this is I'm, I'm going to use one of my biases again, or one of my uh, one of my presumptions. Uh, but it seems to me that to 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 really follow design, uh, it's not a case of just drawing the one thing. You need to experience lots of things and help bring those in. Uh, and and have an interest in lots of different things to bring those into a design of whatever it is you are trying to design. In this case, cars, but you know it could be a mobile phone or something like that. But oh, it's a, it's definitely. I mean, I, I've seen that in other interviews with other designers of products as they talk about the inspiration is from outside. And I think pra- practicing something that isn't just specifically how to make a good you know car good-looking car or something like that is is got to be helpful because you can bring different uh a different viewpoint to it mm, yeah, so uh but i mean yeah i mean it, sorry i've digressed i've gone digressed so early on yeah, <laughs> even for me <laughs> <laughs> no but I, I i think you're right i mean there's certain you know for me like you know yes it's always been cars um you know and and i guess you know the Growing up in New York City, again, it's like, you know, you see the beautiful Lamborghini Countach, you know, on the street, but you don't really care that it can go, you know, zero to 60 in X seconds, you know, I mean, for me, it was always about looking at that car and what that car said about, you know, whoever was behind the wheel or what it looked like, you know, for me, mm. it was always the, the initial aesthetic attraction to those types of cars. And then later on, I was, you know, attracted by luxury barges. But I would always, um, you know, I was I, I always kind of drew things. I always had some artistic sensibility where I would I would paint things, you know, or like some um, I, I would, you know, break out some oil paints and just do some, you know, whatever. It was always abstract stuff. You know, I wasn't like, you know, uh, you know, painting, you know, I wasn't Monet and I wasn't out there painting the Mona Lisa or whatever. You know, it was like 
but I was I was always interested in kind of the interaction of colors or shapes. I mean, one of the things that I also used to draw was uh, plan views of houses. You know, I would design what house I want to I wanted to live in. You know, hopefully <laughs> yes. I would be able to. And I and I researched these things quite heavily. You know, I ended up finding out that you could buy log cabin kits. You know, where they had them pre-designed and the logs were cut to a certain size so that you could assemble this yourself. You know, yeah. and, um, yeah. and then I I would I just started drawing these you know these fantasy homes and I would always draw the garage with the two cars that went well with that specific house. Um, you know, like there was one U-shaped house that was overlooking a canyon. Um, uh, you know, so it, it always had like, uh, uh, Mercedes S class, you know, in, in the, in the garage or, you know, something <laughs> like that. No, 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 that's excellent. Uh, I like, I like that. I used to, I used to do, uh, do house plans as well. A lot, a yeah. lot. Was, um, I break yeah. up cooler. I mean, I'd be like really exact with the, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, don't know how, I have the correct scale. This will be correct. The, the door is this fixed size. <laughs> What's well, funny though? Is oh, attention to detail. It's a, it's a, an attention to detail. Absolutely. Um, no. uh, and you, there's no point throwing in a door that's just not realistic. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, unless it's fantasy land. <laughs> yeah, I never got into architecture for you know probably for reasons that um, I I never was good at math. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still not good at math, you know, I'm more kind of creative, like I, I like putting the words together. I like, I love the moving image. I love photography, but you know, when it comes to calculations, it's, you know, uh, I steer clear from that. <laughs> so going through school, um, with the choices that someone, a student is allowed, let's <laughs> say choices in inverted commas there, but the two or three tracks you're allowed to go down. Yeah. Did you go down a more artistic route with your choices? Were you allowed to do follow that through? Well, uh, I mean, I went to school in the states, right? So you're mm -hmm. kind of you're given a, a curriculum that you have to follow straight through to high school, and then when you graduate high school, it's not like you know France where you you know you finish your um, your your schooling and then you kind of go and specialize and do your thing at university. University is still very much a formative. Um, uh, part of the educational process in the U.S. All right. When I when I left school um, and I went to university, I was still kind of head in the clouds. Didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know that I wanted to pursue something um, in a creative space. And so, what I did was I, I I chose a very broad. I went to a liberal arts college, so I, I went and um, with a very open mindset, and I studied communications. So okay. communications for me was, I mean, this is, you know, pre-internet, right? This is like, well, um, communications to me back then was, you know, okay, well, we'll talk about some products and we'll get and promote them. I mean, PR did exist. So, <laughs> you know, how can I do this? And then, so I studied communications, and then um, after my, I graduated, I, uh, I ended up, my wife and I had been to visit Southern California. Um, back then she was my, my girlfriend and we decided to go on our junior year for a holiday to San Diego. And it was such a beautiful space that we just fell in love with it. The, I mean, it was worlds apart from New York or, you know, Boston where I went to university. It was completely 
you know, it was like uh, it was like paradise, you know, on Earth. Um, <laughs> there was palm trees. It was perpetual summer. Um, you know, white sand beaches, the Pacific Ocean. It was just gorgeous. And for for my wife, who was then studying um, to, uh, to 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 be a scientist, she's a biologist. Um, it was it was kind of the perfect place to be because there was so many um, biotech startups in mm. San Diego area. And I said, hey, you know, well, I've got a communications degree. It's fairly broad, but I can start working in TV. And that was kind of the goal was that I would go to San Diego, find my feet and then end up moving to L.A. And okay. and, and that's basically what happened. I mean, I, I did start working in San Diego. I, I worked at a news station for a while. I was a cameraman and an editor. Um, and then I ended up kind of working in that space for a little while. And I, I ended up working in second unit, like filming stunt work, you know, where, you know, stuntmen drive cars off of uh, bridges. And um, you've got a, a stunt double where the building blows up. And so I was, uh, you know, working on those types of sets. Um, but it was it was really not steady work, and um, and my wife kept telling me to get a real job. So, <laughs> well, you know, we weren't even married then, but um, yeah, she was always the wise one. <laughs> so basically, what I what I did was back then, you know, so that that was kind of the start. This is like two thousand, I right around two thousand two. I'm gonna say, um, I started just cold emailing people. And um, trying to find out how I could get on because this whole passion with the motor vehicle had not subsided, right? I was still, um, I still found them incredibly interesting. I mean, this is, you know, when I moved to California, it was 99, 2000. So I, you know, back then that was like the Audi TT came out and you saw one of those things on the street and you were like, wow, that's like incredible, you know? And so, I, I just presumed that San Diego would be full of uh, convertible PT cruisers or things like that. Going uh, no, no. <laughs> at the other end of the extreme, there. <laughs> you know, there was it was it was funny because San Diego at the time was really up and coming, and it was there was a lot of affluent, especially in you know like La Jolla or uh, Del Mar. I mean, it's there's some really affluent neighborhoods in San Diego where you know you've got like four seasons resorts and things like that and people all drive european cars no one's out there driving pt cruisers i can tell you uh, but uh, yeah, good i mean I, I you know when i was when i was working in tv i was working doing like part-time evening newscasts so i was working in hotels during the day where mm. i see you know people you know come down from la for a weekend retreat you know and they weren't driving um american cars you know um, this is before the SUV boom, really. Yeah. So they all had luxury German sedans, and you know that was just that was just or or Ferraris, you know, like crazy luxury, like sports cars, right? Um, mm. Supercars. But um, I mean, I, I I was I always wanted to get into something that allowed me to kind of do something in this automotive space that I was so passionate about. So. I started emailing people, you know, at Automotive News, at, you know, all these different magazines. And this one guy that was working at Automotive News, he'd written a piece because my family is French and I would spend the, quite a bit of time over there in the uh, in the summertime. My mother would ship me over there to be with my um, my 
you know, uncle, my grandmother, my aunts, and she had a pretty big family, so they would just shuffle mm-hmm. around. And um, I basically, you know, had this notion of, and I had quite a bit of knowledge of what, you know, France was like versus, you know, New York and Paris and Marseille, especially in the South. So when he writ- when this author had written the article, he'd written about um, Peugeot's plan to come back to the U.S. because by by then they'd left and you know um, it was like how would they come back anyway? So I remember he'd written this 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 article that I felt like I wanted to uh, to respond to, and I basically chimed in with my two cents, telling him why um, Peugeot had failed and so on. <laughs> and, <laughs> And um, he uh, and, and at the same time, I asked him, hey, you know, like, I really want to get into um, being an automotive journalist. Can you give me some advice? And so he did. He wrote me back. And um, it was it was great. You know, at the time it was it was San Diego. Right. So I I, mm. I was I didn't really know how to get into writing about cars. And and, and um, there wasn't, you know, much by way of that type of business in San Diego. It was all hospitality or real estate or. Um, so I was, I was basically trying to find my way in and he suggested, why don't you go into PR? And I said, well, okay, you know, that kind of makes sense. Um, it's as my in, you know, I can go into PR and, and do some stuff. So, um, I, I, I did that, but at the same time I was doing, so I was, I was writing about again, hospitality or real estate or what have you. And I was at the same time honing my writing skills. Yeah. Um, and, you know, promoting restaurants or whatever. And it wasn't anything that I was too interested in. But it was, you know, something that gave me a kind of in um, where I... And did it sound like a proper job as well? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is important. Let's not forget that, that little point. <laughs> so it was like, it was good. I mean, and I, I, I did work in that space for, for a while. But at the same time, there was still this nagging feeling. So... As I was in in PR in that space at the time, I started writing bigger companies, which were all based in LA at that time. The Pacific Automotive Group, which was basically Ford um, and Land Rover, Jaguar, they had Volvo, you know, Aston Martin, mm. and they were right up the right up the highway in Newport Beach, right. So I basically wrote them, and um, I I came across this guy, very very nice man. Um, who put me in touch with another company in LA and I started freelancing for them because John who was at, uh, at Pacific Automotive or, um, at, uh, what was it? Premier, Premier Automotive Group, I think it was anyway, working for Ford, um, didn't have any openings at the time. So he, um, suggested I go and work with this company called Automedia who basically I would write freelance articles on the Baja 500 or whatever like event that was going on in San Diego and in the vicinity and take photos and then send them to up up to that company when I was um when I was you know when I was in San Diego and ultimately they ended up offering me a job um but I'd also been looking at ways myself on how to get out of PR and move into automotive journalism and and I found this program in Coventry and that's basically how I came to uh to the to the UK was after moving up to LA living up there for nine months working for this company my 
my application had been accepted and I moved and went and lived up in uh, and, and moved out to to Coventry to uh, get my master's in automotive journalism so Okay, that that might be a little bit of a culture shock from San Diego. Oh yeah, that was. <laughs> I mean, no to, palm trees. <laughs> that was an incredible shock. Like the thing is, my my wife was born in Wimbledon, so for her it was an easy sell. You know, we'd been in San Diego at that point for six years. Um, she was ready for a change, and coming back to you know, quote unquote, the old country, was um, <laughs> was was quite appealing to her. Now for me. I was like, all right, you know, I, I really like this L.A. lifestyle because then I was at that point I'd been living nine months in L.A. I was commuting back on the weekends because my wife was still in San Diego working in her awesome job and, um, you know, working to cure the world of cancer. You know, I mean, doing mm. proper stuff. Yes. And um, and so I was I was like, well, I found this this, you know, this program up there. I, I applied and I've gotten in. So she was like, okay, well, let's go, you know, for a year or two. We'll see. At the time, it was a year-long program. So I was like, yeah, let's, uh, let's go out there and, and do this. So we moved to Coventry. But, yeah, culture shock uh, most definitely. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, moving from L.A. to London where it was still no. <laughs> But this was, this was insane. I mean, this was – the only salvation was that we had a car. Thank God mm. for that because – you know, we were, I mean, when we weren't studying or we weren't, you know, sleeping, um, we were in the car gallivanting around, going and checking out the, you know, the West Coast, uh, you know, Wales and all of that, you know, and uh, go or down. Everywhere but Coventry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we did so much driving. It was amazing, you know, because we were used to the California lifestyle as well, where you do things outdoors, you know, you go mm. for hikes, you go for strolls on the beach or whatever, you know. Um, but the weather is a hell of a lot more consu- conducive to that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you don't have to go wrapped up in your snow gear. <laughs> yeah. So, um, did, did you did you enjoy the one year? Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, I made some good friends out there. People I'm still in touch with now. Um, it was it was funny because, you know, it was it was the second year of the program and the first year was like, you know, really kind of small scale. I mean, I don't think there were that many people on it. Um, but, um, I think there, there were maybe like three students or whatever, like a couple maybe had, had dropped out or stopped taking it or, and the program was still very much trying to find its feet, right? Mm. They didn't have any proper, um, journalists teaching the course. I mean, definitely not automotive journalists, right? They had a couple of modules where, you know, there was guys that had been working maybe for, you know, newspapers and radio stations and, um, but they didn't have a, you know, even though it was supported by, um, Steve Cropley, who is, yep. uh, you know, editor in chief at Autocar, he, it was, um, he wasn't up there, you know, he wasn't, no. you know, I think maybe I saw Steve like once, you know, during the entire um, year of the, of the program where he came up and maybe gave a talk. What's, um, what's funny is John Quirk, who was actually on the year before. So the inaugural year of the program was uh-huh. meant to come up and give us a talk, but he was so busy working at Autocar that he never had time <laughs> to come back and tell us, you know, anything about, his uh, his program or what it was like to actually get a job afterwards or anything like that. So, 
Well, um, the last, the previous two episodes to this one uh, now, uh, I actually had Andrew Noakes on. Yes. Um, and he's now the, uh, for anybody who's missed those and is listening to this and wants to know a bit more about the degree now, the Masters, uh, Andrew heads that up now. Yes. Uh, and it sounds like it is, uh, they know what they're doing now. <laughs> yeah. That they're not making it up on the fly. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, when I, I mean, I'm talking 12 years ago, you know, when I was out yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, enrolled in that program where it was very much in its infancy. And again, Andrew was not part of the program at that time. Mm. Um, but of course, Andrew has a great deal of experience, has written a number of books and, you know, is obviously a, a journalist, a car journalist, which is what was, um, you know, sorely lacking at the time. <laughs> so while you were there, um, what were the sort of things they got you to do? Was it um, journalism stuff and then you were just putting a, an automotive slant on it because it they didn't have any automotive journalists there? So it was just general, this is what journalism is, this is what you need to consider, you know, whether you're going up and sticking a dictaphone in somebody's face or yeah you know yeah. doing shorthand and all that sort of stuff i presume absolutely absolutely you're you're right on you're bang on it was it was more about you know journalism um and so uh we learned about law we learned about shorthand we learned about um you know radio and how to because you know at the time it was still uh radio was still kind of interesting i mean it still is you know um, obviously, we're doing this as a podcast, so um, clearly the audio side of things has never kind of uh, waned. But there's a lot more things now, which you know, at the time we never learned about any of the things that I'm currently doing. So um, when when we were when we were, it was funny because there was it, it wasn't a very big class. I want to say there was about um, maybe like nine of us, um, but you know, some guys left so anyway. There was it was a it was a really small and tight knit group of you know people that were just generally passionate about the automotive industry and cars, mm. and we um, pushed ourselves and we you know we pretty much create created the you know I mean the curriculum revolved around um, your basics of journalism um, and things to learn and what to do and what not to do but at the same time we came up with a hell of a lot of initiatives in our own right where at the end of the course we actually created a, a magazine um you know where some of us authored the pieces took some photographs you know i was on the team that you know worked with uh, laying it out um we you know we didn't have indesign we used cork cork express um i got i got a, a copy from like you know a chinese distributor i don't even know <laughs> no questions asked <laughs> yeah. and um well you know my wife is quite resourceful with that type of stuff so we ended up finding some you know a copy of it and we we worked on creating a magazine which from that year on it was kind of you know uh, it was adopted into the program and now you know every i think every um, year since then has created a magazine. We called it Automotive, uh, which wasn't a very creative uh, title, but um, you know it, it basically said what it did on the tin, right? Yeah. Well, that that um, gives the opportunity for it to be very exciting because you're in 
so early on in a course being formed that you can help develop it. And, and you would have had freedom to go and explore areas that perhaps later classes not, wouldn't get because you were they were going well we're not really sure what the makeup needs to be so let's go and okay well, let's run with your idea let's ha- let's have a go at that and see how that works or not and does it does it tick multiple boxes for us and therefore we can use it again yeah so that that must have been um great fun to to have that freedom well i think it was it was fun for the people that were happy to you know take on that initiative you know um mm. There was there was a few of us that you know we were like all right you know we're gonna write a story I I remember I wrote a story about Land Rovers no one else was interested in uh, in four wheel drive vehicles right so I, I again head of the time yeah head well, of the time I, mean, I, I said <laughs> hey you know if no one's doing this I might as well go out and and do this you know that way um, well one I don't have any competition in that space <laughs> and, and, and and two you know it's it's a something that I'm vaguely interested in. I mean, I've, I've just spent like, you know, um, two weeks chasing the, the Baja 500 in my Jeep, which was, uh, you know, and like I might as well just do something about off road. And it's not like I was necessarily passionate about off road. Like I'm just, I love cars in all forms. So yeah. I decided that I was just going to do, you know, uh, I, I was going to call up, uh, I think it was, a. I called up a Land Rover Experience Center in Devon, and I said, "Hey, um, I'm writing an article about you know Land Rovers, and you know at the time it was the new Range Rover Sport. Uh, you know, so 2006. I said, hey, you know, um, I'd love to come out there and and take one on one of these off-road courses, and so so they were like, sure, you know. So I <laughs> I showed up and like. I think it was February, you know, there's like a nice sheet of frost all over the floor. You know, it's like, I, and I'm taking this Range Rover Sport through the backwoods of Devon. Like it was possibly the only Range Rover Sport that has gone off road then. It was incredible. It was great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I got out and I took some pictures. I, you know, put the car on three wheels. Hold on a second. Put the emergency brake on, run out, snap some photos. You know, it's like, it was great. It was great. And, but, you know, you. I think in order to be like, to get anything done, and in order to be successful in anything, you really need to just go out there and do it, right? I mean, um, and yes. I don't. I don't necessarily. You know, I preach that advice, but I don't necessarily, um, you know, adhere to it at all times because there are some things that that scare me. You know, I mean, I'm. You know, I've now for over a decade, I've been doing this, you know, um, writing about automotive design and, you know, talking to people in the space for a, a long time. So you kind of build up this, um, I don't know, this people know who you are and you have this image and this brand that I don't really want to do anything to mess with that, you know? Mm. And so, um, by that's why like, the videos and all these things, I, I, I'm still kind of reluctant to put myself in front of the camera because I've always been behind it. Um, and I enjoy being behind it. And, um, I, I just don't want to kind of shatter this, um, this, uh, what do you say? Like this image, I suppose that I have of, um, you know, this reputation, 
Um, and you know, it's something that I've built and that I think that I earned. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that I'm really lucky to have kind of fallen into because when I was at Coventry again, you know, I took the initiative to do things, but we had some professors that came from other, uh, walks of life. You know, there was, um, one who was, you know, writing about politics and events and, um, another one that was from radio broadcasting, another one that I think had like, you know, his 15 minutes of fame on the BBC or whatever. But the one that attracted me was Nick Hull, who is no longer there, who was, um, at the time part owner of car design news. And mm. basically thanks to him, I wrote my first, um, piece for car design news while I was still at university on the degree show um, at Coventry University. So it was, um, it's, it's, it's all about like the opportunities that you, that you have and that you, you know, the, the risks that you take, you know, I mean, Nick and I just, he was, he was my professor, you know, it wasn't like mm. we were friends or anything at the time, but I do remember later on when I was out looking for a job and, um, I'd, I, I met up with, uh, Nick at a, at the North American auto show in Detroit. And I, I was like, Hey, you know, are you, uh, are you looking for anyone or whatever? You know, and it, it's, it's all about taking the initiative. You've got to take certain risks and ask certain people or, you know, do something to kind of move it along because nothing's just going to fall in your lap. You need to really just bite the bullet sometimes and do things that might take you out of your comfort zone. But, um, you know, that you're going to end up, either owning or, you know, you're going to get pushed further along and be successful in that area. So you never know, but you've got to take a risk. And I think that advice is something that just is throughout everything that we do in our lives. Yeah, I think it, when it when it comes to asking people for stuff, I mean, the, wor the, the absolute worst that can happen is they say no. Exactly. But it's, it's getting over your own self-doubt and fear Mm -hmm. to realize that that is actually the worst that can happen. Nothing else. Nobody will, well, depending on what you ask, but realistically, most people, if you're asking in a professional way, won't think anything less of you yeah. for, for asking the question. And it may uh, open open up avenues that you never thought about. Even if they say no at that, they may then come back and go, oh, but hang on, we're doing this. Does that interest you? And you just you just never know. if you If you don't put yourself in in there then you're never going to find out anyway you, you've got to get yourself in there in in some way in 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 a grown-up way you know so it's not being pushy it's not being aggressive and it's not being unrealistic with your expectations either i, I feel anyway mm -hmm. no i agree i agree entirely but you know when you're 22 or whatever and you're trying to get into it um you're, oh God! Absolutely! Don't ask me oh, what I was say, yeah. thinking last week. <laughs> let alone, <laughs> it's very easy here. So, you know, this yeah. is uh, this is uh, you know sitting on my couch with a beer, telling the uh, sports people that's not how you want to do it. You want to do it like this, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, but I think after you know, I mean, now I'm at a point in my life where I see people, um, you know, dying, you know, and 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 you realize how short life is, and. No one ever goes to the grave saying, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, usually it's I wish I had done. You know, it's always mm. from what 
what they may have missed out on instead of, you know, um, oh, I, I wish I hadn't said, you know, it's, 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 it's all about, I think, doing the things that you can do and trying to do, trying your damnedest to get out there and do the things that you want to do. Um, yeah. Because those, yeah. are, those are the only things that people will regret is the things that they haven't done. Okay, well, slightly related to that, and something you just said before, then, why, why do you think you might be at risk of damaging your image if you do go in front of the camera? Well, I don't know. It's like I'm, I'm not. What's funny? is it because it's a complete? It's, it's a new, it's a new element to do. Well, yeah, you're very comfortable behind the camera. You know what you're doing. You know what you're looking for. You know how you're trying to get the shot, get the sound, all this sort of, sort of tell the story or whatever. And now you've thrown a new variable into it, which is you. <laughs> and, you know, it's getting over... Well, it, it, when I've tried to do in front of camera stuff, it's getting over myself. Yes. No, it's, 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 it's a bit of that, definitely. I mean, I don't like watching myself, right? Um, mm. To myself either. But um, look, when you write, when I write, I have a lot of time and to get everything together. And so I, you know, writing is easy. You know, at the end of the day, you get, you get it all down. If you don't like this, you can change it. It's not like it's written in, in, uh, you know, in pen on a piece of paper, right? You write on mm. a, on a computer, you can, you can move paragraphs around, you can do this, you can do that. I think what is, what I'm, I guess, I, I've never really been good at public speaking. I think that's my thing is, you know, and I can't help, but I don't know. Um, I can't kind of get over that. You know, I know you're supposed to picture the audience naked and stuff like that. Right. But it's, um, I, I think it goes beyond that. It's more like I have, because of where I am now and because I've been doing this for so long, I have this reputation where I think, people expect me to just kind of pop off and know all these things, right? Where, you know, I, I, I know certain things, but I So the walking encyclopedia. Exactly. But I don't know everything, right? So, and because I don't script anything, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious when you watch my videos, um, is that I go out there and I'll, I'll just talk about and I'll spew things off the top. And that's how I write. But when when you when you write again you can come back and you can add certain bits or you can move a paragraph around and shuffle things around um when you're uh, when you're doing a video yes you have that freedom i guess um from a, an editing point of view you know you can add certain things and put things in in different orders but um i don't know it's it's something about being in front of the camera where it's it's just a lot of things to worry about. You've got to worry about so many different factors, um, not just the image, but you know, is it in focus? Is, is the audio correct? You know, can you? Um, it, what's this background noise all about? You know, is yep. this a good shot? Is the lighting good? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many variables um, that if you're a one man band and you're a professional or, or perfectionist like I am. And you want it to come out looking halfway decent. Um, all of these things are going through your head where you're like, all right, am I going to remember what I'm got to say just because I'm thinking about all these other elements to creating uh, an aesthetically appealing um, piece of you know, video? 
Um, so, so have you started then with making, say, a, a bullet list that you stick by the camera that you can easily just use as an aid memoir? Have you I've thought do about it. doing stuff like that? <laughs> I most definitely have thought about it. And yes, I do need to do that in my next series of videos. But typically what happens... Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this and I'm not trying to... to pick you apart or anything here uh, we were talking before we pressed record about how um i need to put my big boy pants on and start doing video work mm. and i have to get over myself on that and i think that's going to be one of the ways to help myself mm. uh, as you say it's not you know because i will be sitting there going right is is it in focus is the sound okay is my mic on you know is the have i tilted at the wrong angle so i'm getting all sunshine instead of me so it's too too backlit now or you know all the other things that can go wrong and then go right now talk coherently you know it's so hard i mean i i, I had alex goy on and i am totally blown away by what he does uh, and the ease that it comes across as uh, i don't know whether he thinks it's easy but the ease in which he just now appears to be you know he's having a conversation with me and i think that's a, a great compliment to anybody who is trying to do video work that if if you feel they are talking to you yes well you know alex has had a great deal of experience with doing this now yeah um, yeah I'm absolutely sure it didn't come as easy in the beginning but um you know obviously no but we don't go we never look at the back the, the back story we only look at now and go see look at them we can do yeah, that exactly. <laughs> but see they didn't always start off that way and like i don't know I've known Alex for a while. Um, I, I knew him before he was presenting things. Um, but I do know that he scripts quite heavily. Um, okay. And, you know, it, I think in order to do that, you need to have a really good memory. And you need to not only have, like, bullet points, but know where you're going to go from those bullet points. So there's uh, – yes, I agree. The bullet points are definitely vital. and um, But that's not how I, I roll. And, you know, typically – uh, if I go, <laughs> it's just honestly, if I go to a motor show, I'm walking around. You only have a certain amount of time at that show. You've got to interview people. You've got mm. to, you know, speak to. Or you've got to do some writing. You've got to, you know, coordinate interviews with PR guys. You've got to go out and snap some pictures. You've got to go out and snap some, um, some, you know, shoot some video. So when I am out walking around and doing my pieces to camera at a show, um, for the most part, I'm not, you know, it's not something that I've had occasion or opportunity to even jot down some bullet points. It's definitely off the cuff. And, you know, well, maybe that's the style then. Maybe that, you know, if you're in front of the camera, it, it's a different, it's a different vibe to your, to your videos because it is the off the cuff. Yeah. Uh, it is the, um, you know, it isn't uh, as structured as it would be perhaps if you're behind and you're only worrying about from behind. Yeah, well, when when I'm behind, I find those to be quite um, easy to do. You know, I, again, I've been doing this for the last five years, but um, I, I guess I was, you know, I was I was bitten by the video bug not only because I was experienced in in, in it, it goes back into how I kind of started off my career, but um, I remember the. The, um, the things that I was able to kind of stumble across and, you know, I, I shot a, uh, a video which was basically shared throughout all of these other, um, you know, Jalopnik, whatever, all these guys, they picked mm -hmm. it, autoblog, and it went viral. And it was just, 
because I was, I happened to be walking around a motor show with Chris Bangle and, you know, Chris and I, like, I, I've known him for a, a super long time. You know, he was like one of the early um, interviews that I ever did when I was working at Car Design News. Mm. And, you know, he and I just get on famously and I love him. He's, he's just, he says what's on his mind, you know, and, and, you know, you don't find too many people like that, you know, especially, and, you know, I'm going to say in, in the UK, a lot of times people, they keep their opinions. No one wears their heart on, on their sleeve like I do, like Chris Bangle does. Um, and I find that extremely refreshing. You know, you don't need to, you know, go in and figure out what's on the guy's mind. You know, you know, yeah, we're, a, we're a nation of repressed people. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and the same goes with with me. You know, if, if there's. If if I don't like you, you're gonna you're gonna know. You know, there's no you're not gonna need to like ask somebody. You'll know straight <laughs> off the bat. Um, you know what I mean? So so anyway, so I'm walking around with Chris and we're chatting, looking at some cars. And at the time, it was the um, the Saab uh, the Saab brand. Oh, was coming yeah. With I know this. Yeah, sorry. I, yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> They, they just had a new concept car and the, the brand was flagging and it was just horrible and to watch, you know, because I, I quite liked Saab. Um, mm. But this was a period where it was kind of like, you know, it was a, it was incredible that they named the concept car the Phoenix because <laughs> you expected this thing to rise from the ashes and help save the company. Well, and, no, perhaps they were basing it on the uh, MG Rover yeah. group. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we, we ended up coming across um, Jason Castriota, who designed the car, you know, former Bertoni design chief, did some great stuff over at Penn and Farina. I also know Jason quite well. So we just walked over and started having a chat with Jason. And um, and all the time I'm rolling the camera and mm. it turned out to be just such an incredible, um, you know, uh, energy. You know, it was like a conversation that I just caught that was just perfect. And between two designers, you know, talking and it was the way that that video just came to be. And then I uploaded that thing onto YouTube and it got a ridiculous amount of hits and is still on this day the most like to this day still the most widely viewed. I haven't checked lately, but I can guarantee it's up there. Uh, m- most viewed video on uh, on Car Design News uh, YouTube channel. Mm. I mean, it's you know, it's not. Well, I'm I'm going to dig that out and make sure there's a link in the show notes to that because yes, I do. Now you mentioned, I do remember that. Well, even back then, I would say you know, Saab kind of started falling off anyway. I mean, under GM stewardship. They, oh yeah, yeah. They yeah. just destroyed that brand, but um, it was it was it was it was a shame that you know the the brand. You know what happened to that brand? I well, particularly if you look at what's happened to Volvo and what's happened to uh, Jaguar Land Rover as well, that they they are they have been taken over by companies that appear to understand them or to, uh, to appear to give them some freedom. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that seemed to be what uh, Ford and GM got wrong, yeah. very wrong, uh-huh. um, and. You know, again, I don't know. All the, obviously, I have no idea the all the ins and outs. But looking from the outside into it, it just looks like they got it all wrong, and they just tried to they they tried to just put a different skin on one of their own 
underpinnings, which yeah. was n- not quite the way to do it. Well, that's most definitely what GM did with Saab towards the end. I mean, there was rebadged, um, you know, SUVs that, you know, you change the grill on them and it's like a Buick, you know, it's like, uh, it just didn't work. Um, mm. I mean, the, the, the Subaru thing, you know, it was just, I mean, the whole thing was just atrocious considering that company's heritage. I mean, you know, when I was in university, a friend of mine had 900 turbo, it was like a 92, 93, mm. 900 turbo. And those, the, the, you know, the design elements on that car, you know, the wraparound windscreen, I mean, just, in, it was, it, it was a car and a company that had just so much history, so much heritage, so much character. Um, and to see it kind of just dissolve in the way of GM rebadge Subaru, um, you know, just making it just being, um, corporatized basically, it was, it was wasn't it? Disaster. But you know, yeah. they, they had to save, they had to save money, um, in some way. And they found that that was, well, that was their solution, um, you know, in order to, uh, to, to save money. And, you're right, though. I mean, you know, Tata with the likes of JLR and um, Julie with the likes of Volvo. I mean, they realized that, you know, these companies had a level of assets that, you know, the team, the people behind it, they kind of knew what they were doing. And all we need mm. really to do is to give them enough money to kind of keep it running and, um, you know, just get out of the way. And yeah. um, as, as soon as Tata... Um, did actually come up with that cash injection. I mean, we saw you know JLR just come out with some really great products. Um, and like, but it seems to have been done in a controlled way as well. It's not like they've just gone right. Money's no object. Off you go. It seems to be very controlled. Mm. Yet they're still pushing. Yeah. Um, and it it seems like it's a very uh, test. Okay, that works. Now we push again, push again. But we we're not. They're not trying to go too far too fast. Yeah, well, I think the reason why um, also they're they're kind of stepping back is because they're getting results. You know, <laughs> at the end of the day, if what they were doing at Volvo wasn't allowing them to move into premium car territory, um, somebody over at Julie would have said, "Hold on a second. Yeah. The brief <laughs> was chaps. You know, but you know, clearly, um, you know, they've done their research. They know who they're going after, and they're um, they're being given. A certain amount of freedom to to do that, and mm. and the more results they get, the more freedom they'll get, and so um, that's you know I mean at the moment I can't think of a company that's uh, on more of an upward trajectory than Volvo. No. When you consider, um, I mean I'm not just talking design. Obviously, design-wise, you know these you know, products speak for themselves, but also from an engineering perspective, from a you know, a vision perspective, you know, a brand vision perspective, uh, you know, even if you take Polestar and put that aside, I mean, they, they know what they're doing, you know, it's, uh, yeah, there's clearly a plan. There's yeah. clearly uh, a direction they're going in. Uh, and it seems to be, uh, based, uh, to a large degree in making a quality product, mm-hmm. uh, that is attractive to people to buy and to sit in because I, I mean, I, I just love the, the V90, Mm. I think that's just a wonderful piece of design. I've sat, I've driven in a, a an S ninety, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's such a relaxing place to sit in and drive. Yeah. I have no urge to push it along. You know, I will get there when I get there, type thing. But but you're not. It's not as though you're slowly going along either. You know, everything happens. Yeah. But it's it's just such a wonderfully 
it's just wonderfully designed and it is a pleasant place to be and not every car is a pleasant place to be no it is and and also you know from an engineering perspective they've also um they've got uh well you know they've got they've got the balls basically to go out there and say not every car needs to have a v8 you know and um they're doing Mm. quite well from that standpoint as well Mm. um you know obviously with the announcement that was made last week about how they want to electrify the range. I mean, it was a bit misreported. <laughs> yes, let's not. There's no open controversy. <laughs> yeah, because um, you know, Twitter got very angry. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of guys. And that's the thing. You know, I think, I think aggregate journalism is the bane of 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 journalism as a whole. You know, all of us journalists are like complaining about you know oh you know we're not getting as much money i mean you know the game has changed you know you can't Mm. just go out and be a journalist um you know going out and test driving some cars writing 300 words anymore or you know people but you know at the end of the day the journalists quote unquote that are causing this massive kind of um you know the disintegration if you will of this career are the ones that just copy and paste a, pay, a press release, or worse still, that see something written on somebody else's website and misinterpret it, or mm. you know put it in without any you know editing or modifications, or you know uh, I mean in my day at least you had to kind of triple check the facts, right? You couldn't just yeah. say oh this, this guy wrote that so I'll write it because you know they're a reputable titles so why not? I mean. There was one thing recently that was written on Auto Motor and Sport where, oh yes, Frank Stevenson appointed design director at Mini. Okay, let's see here. Does that make any sense whatsoever? <laughs> no, one, no one thought to question this. You know, people were like, yeah, all right. Frank Stevenson goes back to Mini. I mean, give me a break. The guy worked there, what, like 20 years ago? He's not going back there. Like, you know, I mean, come on. He's out there. Well, I, I saw it reported that when they uh, when they announced the, the chap that did take over his name, I can't remember now, but we did mention it on the news show. Yeah. Um, one of the articles said, oh, you know, and this is a bit of a shock because Frank Stevenson was expected to take on the role. <laughs> expected by whom? <laughs> so there's one person that puts out just a, a totally inaccurate piece. Um, if you try to go to Automotor and Sport now, you know, I don't know how they structure their website, but there is absolutely no reference at all to Frank Stevenson and all those poor sods that came off after the fact and said <laughs> Automotor and Sport knows their <laughs> and we're going to publish this um, just got bit in the ass because come on, guys, like, you know, let's think a little bit. Let's, you know, even if you're just and that's the thing. And that's that's why I think. I, I think that's why journalism is on a downward slope because no one even bothers to check the facts and check the story anymore or write their own damn content. And and that just annoys me. Everything that I do is original. Um, you know, I go out there, I speak to the people behind it. I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have a Rolodex full of um, numbers and emails and I can pick up the phone and say, hey, what's going on here? And this, you know, was clearly omitted in the press release. What's happening? Um, yeah, and, but that's taken years to get for you to get to that position. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you here, by well, the way. But I'm just, I'm just 
trying to highlight for anybody who doesn't who is maybe considering going into automotive journalism or something like that it takes years to get to the point where you do have that rolodex but you've got to have that that you've got to approach it in the right way and this is what i was saying before about being an adult about these things and not being too pushy or aggressive or you know just being a grown-up and talking to people in a in a grown-up way about these things because if you do i mean that's something i found you know because it's we're not too the motoring podcast isn't even two years old and the number of people in the industry that are more than happy to talk to to us, you know, let alone come on a show like this, like you are doing uh, this evening, which, you know, I, I am never arrogant about this. I'm always blown away when somebody says, oh, yeah, that's not a problem. I, that, that sounds a good idea. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, because it's, I'm going, oh, this is fantastic. I get, I get to talk to these people and find out more. And that's what you've done. To the, now you're at the position that you say you can use a Rolodex, which we may need to explain for the kids out there. Uh, you can use a Rolodex and go, come on, I've seen this, but that doesn't make sense. Let's have a chat about it. Can we have a chat about it? And because of the work you've done, you've got to the point where people will answer that, that call mm-hmm. or answer that request. And, I mean, you... you you have brought up a, a a topic I did want to discuss with you. It is about the current state of motoring writing content. I think there isn't a nice word for it now because I, I I sort of crawl when I say my back crawls when I say content. But it is content creation because there's such a wide variety of ways we can do it now, mm-hmm. um, which is which is wonderful. I think it's wonderful for all of us because it allows all of us to find something we like. Mm-hmm. In a, in a format that we enjoy and prefer to consume it in. Um, so I think we are lucky in that way. But equally, it means anybody can just put stuff out there. Um, you know, hi, we're here, Motoring Podcast. <laughs> but, you know, we're, uh, we are putting stuff out. Um, you know, what you were saying before there, it, you know, our new show is based on us commenting on articles or news items from other people and we put in other people's news articles to say right if you in the show notes to say along the lines of uh, the news item is basically this in a couple of sentences if you want to read more here is autocars article or motoring researchers article or form trends article or whatever and we've got the link and people can go off and go to a source to to go further into it so you know we're we're curating we're not creating. We're just that new show is a curating show, right. um, and that is possibly. I don't know. I'm, I'm, are we part of a problem with this? I don't know. It, you know, it's maybe it is that, uh, and I, I know what you mean about there. There are people out there that because you, you can see it if you're part of news press, which I think is a wonderful resource to mm-hmm. that you get this information in. But you can see somebody has just gone. Oh, that's come in. I need to fill. I need to write a couple of articles every day. Mm. I'll take that. There it is. Yeah. You know. And what can? What do you think is the solution to that? Do you think it is possibly uh, people get bored of that type of content because they don't see the value in it, so they just avoid going to those sites? Or how do you think it's it's anything we can ever fix? I think it's um, it's it's a very that's a very interesting question, and clearly it's still one that uh, I ask myself um, every day. Um, it's it's and it's one that different answers come up 
over the course of like the next week, for example, I'll come up with different answers to that. So let me explain <laughs> what I mean. Basically, um, if you if you want to know what's going on in in you know in the world of cars, um, you can go and read Autocar or Auto Express here in in, in the UK. Um, you know, if you want a little bit more specialist, you know, you can pick up a copy of Evo or, you know, you just surf their websites Mm. Um, and you can find all of that stuff online. Now, um, I think those are good for, you know, giving you straight information. Some of it might be regurgitated press releases. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, and, um, if we don't, take the time as journalists to do the, you know, the journalist six and go out there and find out who, what, when, where, why, and how, um, to report, you know, facts. The only thing we're going to have in the future is something that's put out by an, you know, by a news press, by a manufacturer's website. And, you know, all we're going to have is that one sided story. And Mm. the way that, you know, people are regurgitating these press releases is, and without adding any value um, is I, th- I think it is kind of the downfall of of uh, journalism, because what do they need us for? You know, a, a, a manufacturer can do that with his, you know, 250,000 Instagram likes or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, they don't need a journalist to regurgitate. The only way that a journalist is going to be um, valued is if they can add value. Mm. So, um, you know, if uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, as starting off, it's going to be hard for you to have, you know, and, and I don't actually use a Rolodex. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't had one of those in years, but I do have <laughs> all of these contacts stored digitally in my contacts on my computer. But, just to show you down with the hip kids. Yeah, you know, just exactly. to... <laughs> uh, otherwise, I'd probably lose it. But um, but anyway, um, no. But the thing is, if you don't, you know, you need to you need to get your start somewhere. And if you don't mm. answer the questions that need to be asked and provide a little bit more value to a straight A and B story, um, you know, who's going to bother? I mean, I don't want to read something that I can read on uh, Jaguar's press site or you know mm. i can find out some information if you if you like autocar for example come out with some comparative figures or you know tell me why this is significant you know historically or you know why it's it's why i should basically pay attention um to something that's not just a straight you know news story um, give me a little context. Give me a little background. Tell me what's going on with other companies. Tell me how it relates to another car. Tell me, you know, something that is going to give me something more. And that's that's where I kind of, as as a one-man band, that's where I get kind of held up. It's that I want to give these quality stories. And that's why, again, like I, I'm now a subscriber website because people who want to see – and know about the, you know, what's going on. I didn't, you know, I didn't start it off that way. In the beginning, I was like, yeah, free for all. I want everybody to know about what happens in the world. But, you know, it's, I wanted to do that. And that was me being altruistic. But at the end of the day, I've got bills to pay and I've got a family to feed. So 
It's Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's not like I'm trying to make money off of this. I'm really just trying to break even. Um, I put in a lot of time and effort into this, all of which basically costs money, right? Mm. And so I'm just trying to, if I can make a living doing this, that would be great. I'm nowhere near there. Um, but at least now I'm able to cover the costs of, you know, my trips to motor shows. I don't get invited by uh, manufacturers because if I did, I'd have to spend two days on a, you know, manufacturer stand talking to them about whatever and staying in their five star hotels, which would be nice. But I wouldn't have the freedom of being able to walk around the show halls and talk to all these other people that I want to. And so that's why I fly economy. That's why I stay in Airbnbs or, you know, whatever, just to go out there and, and be independent. And that to me is more valuable than getting on a business class flight or, you know, staying in a five star hotel because I value the story more than the perks. Yeah, absolutely. And that is the end of part one of my chat with Eric. Next week, we'll pick up our conversation, continuing the discussion on journalism, and we get to investigate his car history, amongst other items that we discuss. Thanks once again to Eric for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you found part one as fascinating as I did. And if you want to suggest someone I should ask to come on this show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it here in Motor and Podcast Towers. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. And if you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news, opinions and car reviews, go try out the sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. Remember, you can support everything we do at the Motoring Podcast in a couple of ways. Please go to motoringpodcast.com forward slash support to see what they are. I would also really appreciate it if you could tell others about the show. I want as many people as possible to hear about the great guests that come on here. So, until next time, that was Eric Galina, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.